Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, one of the most visible organizers behind the Ottawa protest was denied bail yesterday. Andrew Fergiorelli, who's a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at University of Toronto, will join us to talk about the details of that case. Canada and many other countries have announced sanctions against Russia amid the Ukraine tensions. What implications do the sanctions have, and is it enough? And some Ontario police officers have been named as some of the donors in the truckers' convoy. We dive deep into how that report came about. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's focus on the courtroom in Ottawa, uh, where, uh, well, the ramifications of the uh, siege of Ottawa uh, are starting to fall together now. A number of the people that were arrested uh, have been appearing before magistrates, judges in Ottawa. And uh, I want to get uh, some explanation as to what's going on, why it's going on. And uh, a lot of the debate that uh, has occurred in the Commons, in the House of Commons over the last couple of days, uh, has to do with uh, assets being seized uh, under this uh, legislation, under this Emergencies Act. So to uh, add some clarity to this, uh, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Andrew Fugelli, who was, of course, lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of uh, Toronto. Uh, Andrew, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Good to talk to you again. Well, let's talk a little bit about, we'll start with bail, if we could. Uh, we've heard a lot about that over the last couple of days now with uh, some of the principals who have been arrested and, uh, and are seeking bail. Uh, I was going to say, a lot of people don't seem to understand exactly what this process is. I think it includes some of the people that are being charged because some of the, their actions, I think, are, are questionable, to say the least. But the, the, the story yesterday, of course, was uh, Tamara Litch, who is uh, uh, considered to be one of the organizers, one of the principal organizers, uh, was denied bail. Uh, and maybe you could go through that process for us and then a few questions about that, okay? Sure. Uh, so everybody's got a right to a bail hearing uh, if they're arrested and, and they're not released from the station. And for the most part, it's the Crown that has the onus on a bail hearing if they're going to ask that somebody be detained, and that was the case here. Um, and uh, essentially what happened in court was it, it was, I mean, it's a very unique situation, but the actual bail hearing itself was not that out of the ordinary at all. Uh, uh, the Crown sought her detention. Uh, the defense ran the bail hearing, and uh, it's their job to show, uh, it's, the, it's the Crown's job to show that there's a problem on one of three concerns. Number one, is the person going to fly? Are they a flight risk? Are they going to leave the jurisdiction and not appear for their trial? Number two, um, are they a danger to the public? Would releasing them cause an ongoing risk to somebody or some group of people's safety? And third, having a look at all the circumstances, would the general public, would the, would the average reasonable person of the public lose faith in the justice system if this person was released? Um, and, and oftentimes that's invoked for really serious cases. Um, and what happened here was the presiding judge uh, decided that the Crown had met its onus uh, and decided that there was an ongoing risk uh, if this individual was going to be released uh, and also decided that for the general public to release this person on the plan that the defense presented uh, for their release, uh, th that person would lose faith in the in the administration of justice. And, and I note here one of the big problems for the defense, and this happens on a daily basis in bail hearings, was that, uh, that they believed that the surety plan here was not going to be strong enough to overcome those concerns. The surety being the person who pledges money 
uh, and, and agrees to keep watch of somebody if they're released pending their trial. Uh, and in this case, the plan that the defense put forward wasn't good enough in the judge's eyes. That is not uncommon in our system when someone's bail is denied. Andrew, is there a time period after the arrest in which you must uh, make a court appearance? So by by law, it's I mean, it's flexible in the sense that when your actual bail hearing is held, uh, but you have to be brought before a justice within 24 hours if okay. you're if you're going to be held for a bail hearing. Now, that doesn't mean, Bill, that your bail hearing will be run within 24 hours. These individuals for a serious case got relatively quick bail hearings frequently. And we see this in, in larger cities all the time. You see in large gun sweeps, for example, where, where there are a number of people charged with gr- gun and drug offenses, sometimes their bail hearings will take weeks to to actually run because the court time needs to be put aside because the bail hearings will often take half a day or a full day. Here, a, a lengthy bail hearing got brought on much quicker than would be ordinary for a case of this size. Uh, but regardless of when the bail hearing is run, you've got to be brought before a justice within 24 hours for either your bail to be addressed or for your matter to be put over for it to be addressed on another day. You were talking about uh, the seriousness of the charges, and I know that uh, as some of the commentators over the weekend were talking about these charges, and and mischief seemed to be the common one among many of them, including uh, in in these two particular cases that we're going to talk about. Uh, And I think some people were initially dismissive and say, mischief, what's the big deal? It's from my understanding under the criminal code, that's a pretty serious charge or can be. And and the the, the sentencing, if convicted, can be substantial. It it is. In fact, it it was the the primary charge for the uh, the individuals who face the most serious charges uh, uh, under the during the G20 protests. Mischief, I think everybody thinks of as a very minor offense, like, you know, I throw a a rock through your car window, that's mischief, that's true. Uh, but mischief can also be included, uh, uh, can also include, excuse me, very large-scale property damage or very large-scale interference with somebody's property. And if you think about those words, da- property damage, interference with someone's right to enjoy their property, that can take on a very broad uh, definition. And, and it often does. And and it's become, because of how broad it is, it becomes the vessel in cases like this of civic disturbance, right? Like, they're not going to be charged with something like treason. That's not going to happen. But mischief and conspiracy to commit mischief can take on very broad and serious connotations in our justice system. They have in the past and they are now. Yeah, uh, Lich and uh, a couple of the others who appeared yesterday or are about to appear in the next little while, of course, have been charged not just with mischief, but as you touched on, conspiracy. Uh, in other words, that's essentially pointing the finger at them and say they're the ones that organize this. That's right. And they're planning, the, the, the Crown is alleging that they are planning, uh, uh, at least two of them are planning to actually commit mischief. It's a distinction. It's not that they're planning a peaceful protest and then mischief arises from the people there. They couldn't be charged if that's the case. Uh, But here the Crown is alleging they are planning and conspiring to actually break the law and cause mischief. And and that's what makes the seriousness of it uh, uh, most palpable. I I mean, to your point, uh, the, the quote we got from our reporting on this yesterday, uh, from Justice Bourgeois, she passed uh, her decision. 
says, I cannot be reassured that I, if I release you into the community that you will not reoffend. Your detention is necessary for the protection and safety of the public. So that's basically she's just playing it by the book, I would think. That's that secondary ground that 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 I said out earlier. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's it to a T. And and there's another just another note, if I could here, Bill. Yeah. Um, the, the, Justice Bourgeois is a judge. Ontario is, to my, I believe, the only province. Uh, but regardless, in in Ontario, the vast majority of bail hearings are done by justices of, of the peace. Uh, this case, a judge heard it. Um, and, and I think it speaks to how seriously the justice system is taking these charges. Um, and uh, uh, for a judge to sit on this is, is not unheard of, but it's much less common than, than having a justice of the peace hear the first bail hearing. So, and with that result, and we're not going to, I guess, find out about the other uh, main in, in participants of this, I guess, until Friday. We're told that's going to be held over until then. So they, they stay behind bars until their trial begins. Yes. Uh, the, the one caveat to that, Bill, is you have a right to a bail review, which is essentially an uh-huh. appeal of the bail decision. And that would happen in the Superior Court before a Superior Court judge uh, who would essentially be sitting uh, on an appeal of Justice Bourgeois' bail decision. It's a tough test on a bail review. You have to either show that Justice Bourgeois made an error uh, that could well have affected the result of the bail hearing, or you have to show a serious change in circumstances. Uh, so, for example, you'd have to show that somehow the Crown's case is weaker than was originally p- presented at the bail hearing, or that there is this new stringent plan that's completely different uh, uh, than what was presented at the original bail hearing. So uh, that is available, and I would expect the defense is going to look at that at some point, uh, they're going to want to try again, as is their right. Um, and uh, I would look for that to happen within the coming weeks. Another element of this that you touched on, and I was kind of intrigued by, uh, those who put up bail, surety, I think it was the phrase that you used. In yep. both cases, for both King and for Furlage, uh, there was some questioning, and, and I think some skepticism about this. I mean, we're told that her husband, I guess, flew in from, from Alberta uh, for this, on a private jet because he's he's not back, so we couldn't get on a, a commercial flight. Uh, and my understanding is is the justice here. I, I said, well, who paid for that? And he said, well, some guy named I think he said Richard didn't have any other information about that. And there's out of skeptical eye. And the other uh, apparently who is putting up the surety uh, for uh, for King uh, is uh, somebody named Comex who said that she basically met him on on the truck convoy on the way into Ottawa uh, and wants to say put him under house arrest with me. Fifty thousand dollar pledge, I guess, against her mortgage. Uh, and she said that, uh, don't worry, I'll keep an eye on him. I'm a light sleeper and I have a dog. So I, I don't know. Now, that that decision hasn't been rendered yet. Uh, but it seems to me as if uh, the, those who put the money up for bail are also going to be scrutinized here. Well, they are. And there's a couple of points to what you've raised here that, that um, I think we can get into a little bit. First of all, um, sureties are essentially performing a function of the court. Uh, if an individual is released uh, and uh, and someone is named as a surety. The surety has to ensure uh, that that individual who is charged abides by their conditions. And if somebody is going to go to court and refuse to answer a direct question as to, for example, where the funding came from for their private jet, a court 
is going to rightfully be skeptical of whether that person is going to take their job seriously in enforcing a court order. If you're not willing to tell the truth or be full and frank with, with a judge when you're actually testifying at a bail hearing, a judge is going to say, well, you know, what faith do I have in this person to actually enforce the, the bail that I would release the person on? That's number one. And, and with the second example, the individual who, who you know, uh, met the organizer on the way to the convoy. Part of the reason the surety system is deemed to work as well as it does is the surety has to be somebody that the accused person cares about. There's a phrase in the law called the pull of bail. And what it means is if I'm charged, for example, and my mom comes and, and, and pledges uh, money for my release, um, I'm going to want to abide the conditions because I'm not going to want to let my mom down. I'm not going to want to put my mom's pledge at risk, etc. cetera. Uh, here, somebody that you met a month ago uh, in the circumstances in which you were charged, a judge may well be skeptical about, well, if I release this person and they want to breach their bail, are they going to really care that this person who they met a month ago and who they barely know uh, is going to be out money? Maybe not as much as if it's, say, somebody from their family or a close friend that they've known for a long time. So the pull of bail is a significant issue for a judge, especially in a case as serious as this. Fascinating information, and, and I just want people to, to understand exactly some of the process here. Just watching some of the uh, the comments on social media over the last couple of days, and I, I, clear, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, there's a lot of uninformed comments going on right now about who's doing what and, and, and why. Uh, and I got so many other questions. Our, our time is tight, unfortunately. I could spend the whole show talking to you about this, Andrew. It's fascinating <laughs> stuff, and it's and it's very important as we go through this process, because uh, there are civil lawsuits uh, that are being filed right now. There's, uh, uh, you know, seizure of property, et cetera, like that. So uh, let's stay in touch, because uh, as as each day unfolds here, there's always going to be more questions, and, and we're always uh, grateful for you for for spending some time with us to try to clear the air on this. I'm always happy to come on and talk with you, Bill. Okay, thanks again, Andrew. Take care. Andrew Frigidoelli, of course, who is a lecturer of faculty of law at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, as we heard yesterday, uh, the incursion into Ukraine has officially begun. Uh, the uh, Russians are, are trying to justify this simply by saying the uh, two easternmost states uh, are under siege by the Ukraine, so they've decided to move troops. The, the Russians have been, uh, troops have been in there for quite some time, but not officially. Uh, and a number of nations, including Canada, have responded. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland says that uh, the sanctions that they announced yesterday are just the beginning of Canada's punishment of Russia. If it persists, the aggression against Ukraine will continue, so will the sanctions increase. Here's what the Deputy Prime Minister had to say. History tells us that we cannot stand by as great power attempts to redraw borders and conquer its neighbours. And today is a test of our resolve. That is why Canada has a clear and present stake in this conflict. So that's the uh, the Deputy Prime Minister at a, at a media conference yesterday with the Prime Minister and, and uh, some of the other folks in Cabinet about this. So let's let's talk a little bit about the sanctions and, and what they are and what they mean uh, and shed some light on that. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Daniel Bayland, who is the Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Daniel, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for the invitation. Were you uh, surprised at how quickly the Canadian government responded to this? No, and it, it, it's part of a concert, uh, concerted effort by uh, our allies, so Australia, the UK, uh, Germany, the European Union, and of course the United States. 
so they all announced uh, uh, targeted sanctions on, on the same day um, yesterday uh, to put more pressure on 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 Russia and and as you said earlier, this is just the first wave of these uh, these sanctions. So uh, it depends, of course, what um, what Putin and uh, the Russian uh, forces, uh, armed forces, will do next. But certainly, uh, uh, there is a clear message uh, that was sent here. Talk to us about about who's being targeted here. As I understand this, uh, the sanctions are going to target members of the Russian parliament who voted for the decision to recognize the, the two separate regions. Uh, and it's also uh, banning Canadians from all financial dealings uh, with those regions, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and, and targeting Russians, I guess, who supported this in, in the Russian parliament. Uh, and anybody who saw that, because that, that actual meeting was televised, of course. I, I don't know if they actually voted for it, or they just voted the way Putin told them to. But, but if this, is, this is a very targeted approach to sanctions, isn't it? Yes, for the time being, again, uh, it's the only the first wave. So I think that, uh, and it's not just the first wave in terms of Canyon sanctions, because on their own, you know, the Canyon sanctions don't don't matter that that much. But when you combine that with the the other sanctions that were announced uh, yesterday from uh, countries like um, the United States, Australia, the UK, uh, Germany, and the European Union, then that um, you know that that's much more. Uh, uh, meaningful, but there are other things that could be done uh, uh, moving uh, moving forward by the international community. Uh, they could, for example, ban Russia from using the U.S. Uh, dollar, or they could, uh, uh, you know, exclude them from um, from SWIFT, which is a, a financial uh, messaging service. And so they could really attack their banking system in a big way. They could also, uh, you know, block the export of. Um, some high-tech uh, materials to Russia. Uh, there is, of course, the energy sector, which is very important. Uh, gas uh, exports to country like like Germany. So um, it's you know there is an array of, of tools that could be used to to increase the um, uh, the pressure on Russia if they will decide to. Uh, uh, send more troops into Ukraine because, as you said, they're already doing it in the far east of, uh, of Ukraine in these two uh, breakaway regions. But um, you know, it, it, the odds now that the Russia will escalate the the conflict are, are quite high. So I think that um, our allies and our, our I think, uh, willing to work with us to uh, to do more. Um, uh, in the near future, but what is sure is that the United States already said they will not, you know, engage in a military conflict, uh, send troops uh, uh, to Ukraine. So the, what we are using is kind of um, a diplomatic means. We are also sending more troops um, into um, into the Baltic states, uh, but that's more, you know, this is just to protect these uh, these countries that also, you know, feel vulnerable vis-à-vis uh, uh, -vis Russia. So we are sending a bit more than 450 uh, uh, members of the uh, the armed forces uh, to, to Latvia, uh, and our allies are doing something similar. So, uh, again, it's about increasing the pressure on, on Russia and reassuring also other countries that have a border uh, with Russia, like the Baltic states, the three Baltic states, which were just like Ukraine, part of the Soviet Union for decades, and our, you know, fear uh, Russian retribution. 
And what would their role be? I'm talking about the military move part of this yesterday, Danielle. You know, you mentioned there, you know, basically it's to reassure some of those states and Canadian troops, as you mentioned, are going to be stationed in Latvia. Uh, is it a defensive role? Are they are they training uh, the, our military folks in that country or are they just unwatched in those particular countries? Yeah, it's really uh, to reassure these countries and show to Russia that, uh, um, you know, we are we are really uh, determined to to uh, to protect these uh, these countries are allies um, and so there is also we are sending uh, people on the ground uh, we also uh, are, are are beefing up uh, the, uh, the the aircraft support we are sending a frigate there so it's 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 not offensive I don't, I don't think that the goal is to uh, attack Russia but yeah it's a, it's a defensive move and to show that we will we will we stand with our our allies um uh who have a, a border uh, with Russia and, and feel really insecure considering what's happening in uh, uh in Ukraine because this this whole situation is in Ukraine is part of a broader Russian strategy to keep their their zone of influence and and um, to really have their, you know, their, their the the rush, they, they they really want to um, to send a strong message to the West that, you know, countries that have a border uh, with Russia should remain under Russian influence. Uh, and the fear, of course, that the Putin and Russians, uh, Russian government have regarding Ukraine is that they will at some point join NATO or even the European Union. And that's something that they want to uh, to avoid at any cost. Uh, let's talk about the targeting that's gone on in place. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland uh, was clear yesterday, uh, saying that Canada's quarrel is not with the Russian people, but with Putin and his supporters. And and I, I, I assume by that uh, she's referring to well the oligarchs, the the, the powerful, the the those who uh, basically are supporting Putin, I guess, in a large way. Uh, in other words, you want to hit them in the pocketbook uh, more than just the average person. Who I were told, I guess, Danielle are already in a rather dire circumstance because of the uh, some of the uh, other things that have been imposed upon them in the last little while, uh, sanctions, uh, because of past transgressions, including Crimea. Uh, is, is it targeting like this to, to what she calls the supporters or the oligarchs, uh, the elite in Russia? Is it an effective way to, to get the message across to, to Putin? Yes, that's true, to send a message to the elite, to Putin and his supporters, certainly. But will it be enough to uh, to avoid further uh, Russian actions in Ukraine? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, probably that more uh, more sanctions will be necessary sooner rather than later. So they are adopting, uh, you know, Canada and our allies are adopting a kind of incremental approach, and we start with one wave of sanctions and we'll, we'll beef up these sanctions over time and add more sanctions. Um, and um, I think we should see probably as soon we'll see an escalation in in, uh, in uh, this you know uh, approach with sanctions um, because that's probably the best tool that we have right now against Russia the economic tool um, and um, and 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 there's more that we can do um, so we are sending a message to Russia right now but um, this is likely to intensify over the the next days and weeks. And to that end, we not. You mentioned the troops are going to be in a defensive role in the United States, as you, as you articulated, uh, are sending troops, and so are other NATO allies. 
Uh, but are you playing into Putin's hand by doing that? Because the message he's giving to his people is is that NATO's going to invade Russia. Uh, and, and that's, I guess, what he's using as justification. So are we just really kind of priming the, uh, the you know, the, the propaganda pump here? Yeah, they might, they might be uh, saying that, but it is not a, a realistic uh, claim. And uh, certainly the Putin is, is really, uh, has been for, for a long time, uh, you know, sending the message to, uh, to, Rus- uh, to Russians that, you know, the country is under siege and that it's time for Russia to regain its influence in the region. And, and to, to, uh, um, there is a sense that there is a kind of uh, the, 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 the countries that have a border with Russia should, uh, should be under Russian control or at least should be friendly to Russia. Um, and, and, and so this is, again, part of a bigger strategy. It's not just about Ukraine. Um, and, um, and also there is, you know, all sorts of things going on. Putin won't be a leader for, uh, forever. And so there is also, uh, uh, I think, uh, a struggle for a succession that's going on, uh, behind, uh, closed doors, you know, behind the scene, all sorts of things going on. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that the Russia is in, um, is playing, a really a tough, uh, a tough game in uh, in Ukraine, and I think that the uh, Putin is, wants that to be part of his legacy, you know, so that uh, Eastern Ukraine, at least, to be under under Russian control, is something that uh, he thinks should be part of his uh, of, of of his legacy as as leader. Uh, and it's again, there are a lot of uh, people in Russia, and especially the, in the entourage of Putin. Uh, who are a bit nostalgic of uh, you know the Soviet Union and uh, uh, what what existed uh, uh, before 1991, mm-hmm. uh, and they certainly want to restore the grandeur of Russia and its its uh, and its dominant role uh, um, in the region, and and they see really uh, the European Union, the United States, uh, and NATO as as obstacles to that. Um, and and what they are doing now in uh, in Ukraine is uh, uh, is really part of this broader geopolitical strategy. Well, we'll see what happens in the reaction to this. I guess over the next couple of days, Danielle. While I've got you, I've got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to get your uh, your read on uh, a story that uh, broke yesterday. Uh, the Conservative Party, of course, the Federal Conservative Party, are are will soon be looking for a new leader. Uh, Aaron O'Toole stepping down. Um, uh, the only confirmed candidate, of course, is Pierre Polyev. But yesterday we found out that eight conservatives from Eastern Canada uh, have written a letter to former Quebec Premier Jean Charest uh, and urging uh, through his, what I think the French he used was his sense of duty and want him to run to be the leader of the Conservative Party, the Federal Conservative Party. Uh, surprised a lot of people when this, this story broke. Uh, th- this is a name from the past, of course. Mr. Charest has a, uh, a rather stellar reputation, both federally and, of course, provincially in the province of Quebec. Uh, were you surprised by the letter? No, not not that much because you know we we it's not the first time that people uh, you know want uh, think that Charest could run or even want him to run, uh, especially in yeah Eastern Canada. So last time around uh, during the last federal uh, uh, the, the last uh, federal conservative leadership race, um, the, the, there was some discussion that. Uh, Mr. Charest will run, and actually, uh, uh, he, he had 
already prepared a video to announce that he was running, I think. And, <laughs> and then uh, he pulled the plug on his own uh, leadership bid. I think there was quite a bit of opposition from uh, out west and from uh, people around uh, in the entourage of Stephen Harper and so forth. Uh, so will he run this time around? He was tempted to do that um, uh, a few, a couple of years ago, and, and now there is uh, a second opportunity uh, to, to do it. Uh, he's 63 years old, um, so he could still do it, I think, um, but uh, it's not sure that he will be welcome as liberator. That's the least we can <laughs> say by people, especially uh, out west. So yes, there are people in Quebec, Atlantic Canada, maybe Ontario, who might like uh, to... Uh, uh, w- within the Conservative Party, who, who might uh, like to see Mr. Charest uh, running, but um, his approach is someone really associated with, of course, the Progressive Conservative Party, yeah. uh, which is, uh, of course, no longer exists. And um, and I think that uh, uh, it would be hard for him uh, to uh, to to win that race, that leadership race. But if he would succeed then the odds that someday he could become prime minister would probably be quite high because he's quite close to the center, uh, he's bilingual, he has support in Quebec uh, and out east, um, and uh, he, he might be a successful, uh, you know, he might be successful as, as a party leader, but to actually win the leadership race uh, uh, will be uh, something uh, quite difficult considering that um, the, the the current push for a more populist uh, a leader, or, or especially in the aftermath of uh, of what 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 happened with these uh, this wave of protest, I'm not sure that uh, it will be a, an easy uh, an easy run for for Jean Charest. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I think sort of the the subtle message here from the the eight who signed on on this letter. Uh, was that, look at our last two leaders uh, have have tried to placate the extreme right wing of the party. Uh, and, you know, it got them the leadership, but they, they got beaten by a very unpopular prime minister in the last two elections. We need somebody who can win. That, that seems to be the message here. Uh, yeah. If that were to happen, and if Sheree were to decide to jump into this, uh, does that signal that there is, I think we already know that there's a lot of discontent within the Conservative Party right now because they haven't formed government. But do they look to a guy who's, as you say, more centrist like Charest, or do they still, uh, you know, fear that the very repercussions from from those on the extreme right of the party? Yeah, no, that's that's a, a dilemma for the, the the Conservative Party of Canada. If they they will pick someone like like Charest, I think they will probably increase the odds they could uh, form government. Uh, but uh, then, significant uh, components of the base will not be apt happy uh, about this. And the, the danger, of course, with the, the Conservative Party of Canada, which is a recent party, was created less than 20 years ago, is that it could break up. Um, and someone like Charest will, if, you know, the, the victory of someone like Charest could create some, uh, um, you know, some tensions within the party, obviously, uh, greater tensions than, you know, when, when the Renault tool move uh, towards the, the center during the last federal campaign, much greater tensions. And then if someone like Pierre Poilievre will win, that could also create, I think, a lot of tensions uh, uh, among the more, uh, you know, progressive conservative folks, uh, people who, uh, especially uh, uh, in Atlantic Canada or in Quebec. So 
Um, I think that the party uh, is facing a lot of challenges in terms of its own unity, regardless of uh, who the, the, the next uh, leader uh, will be. Well, exactly. And I guess the overriding question for conservatives is who are we and uh, and what do we stand for? Uh, it's fascinating to watch this unfurl. Uh, Danielle, always a pleasure to have you on the program to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day. And you too. Danielle Bailan, the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I guess that might be a surprise to some people who are watching what was going on in Ottawa over the last number of weeks. But investigative work uh, by the Toronto Star has indicated that Ontario police officers are named in a leaked list of donors to the so-called Freedom Convoy, the protest convoy that went around there. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Grant LaFleche. Grant is a journalist with the St. Catherine Standard, but he's also part of the Toronto Star investigative team uh, that did the digging on this story. Uh, Grant, uh, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you on the program today. Thanks for having me. Let me get right down to Grant. What was the motivation for this? I mean, I, I, I mean, I heard anecdotally, and I'm sure you guys did too. You know, over the four weeks uh, almost that this thing was going on in Ottawa, of watching police officers standing by and not doing much, and and a number of citizens were saying it's, it's like these guys are on their side. Uh, and and I, said, I said, well, we don't know that. Well, according to the work you guys have done on this and the research, it sounds like some of them were on their side. Well, I mean, it, when you look at the reasons why we decided to do the investigation, once the hacked Give, Send, Go, uh, which was the crowdfunding source that uh, was doing the fundraising for, uh, say, the second half of the Ottawa occupation, once we had that data, we were looking for um, people who'd be in positions of public trust, uh, and police officers are one of them. And you're right, there were a lot of questions about uh, the way in which police had been handling the the protest and the occupation in Ottawa prior to uh, the federal government invoking the Emergencies Act. And of course, we saw what happened this past weekend. So um, it seemed to us that if there were police officers who had been donating to this cause, uh, especially when the Give, Send, Go campaign had begun, because remember, that campaign um, didn't start until February the 2nd, after the original GoFundMe campaign had been shut down, and the occupation in Ottawa had been declared illegal by both police and the federal government. So that's why uh, myself, um, Alex uh, McKean, Marco Oved, and Sheila Wang, all part of the STARS investigative unit, uh, be- the four of us began to pour through uh, the 90 plus thousand names uh, on that list to see if we could determine if there were Ontario police officers who had donated specifically in the services that had been sent to Ottawa to try to manage the occupation. And as you so rightly point out in the piece, uh, it, it's not illegal for, for police officers to make political donations. But to, but to label this as a political donation is a pretty loose interpretation of that, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, the the we've reached out to the police associations, the unions that would, you know, uh, advocate for their officers in the event that something like this uh, would result in disciplinary action. <clears throat> One of the questions that we did ask was, you know, what what do, what do you do with officers who make political donations generally? But in in this, they didn't answer us. But in this specific case, it, it's not just. Um, uh, it's not like just donating to the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party or something, as you say. Uh, this was a donation to a, uh, I guess you could call it a social movement that had decided it was going to occupy the capital city and was not going to leave until they got their way. 
and it had been declared an illegal protest. And let's not forget that many of its organizers had a stated aim when they began this thing of essentially overthrowing the Canadian government. So that is why um, it's definitely of interest to see if police officers had indeed uh, given any money to the cause. Now, you did reach out to police services about this, and uh, my understanding is you didn't get much in the way of a response from any of them. We didn't get a response um, from most of the police officers that we were able to cross-reference and identify from the Toronto, the Ontario Provincial Police, and the Ottawa Police. Um, The police unions decided to say nothing. Um, The services uh, finally did get back to us, two of them anyway. Um, Both Toronto and the OPP said that they were aware that some of their members' names were on the Give, Send, Go donation list, and they had started an internal investigation to review it. The Ottawa police, the service that's come under the most scrutiny since the uh, occupation began, uh, they simply said they were exploring. That's all they said to us. You know, they had received our message and they were exploring and they've not said anything else since. Who was, which organization was it uh, in your exploration of your grant uh, suggested that, well, that's a leaked list, so it's illegal, so we're not going to comment on that? Uh, I think both the, the, well, Toronto certainly did. Um, uh-huh. The Toronto Police Service response uh, to our, to the team was this was illegally obtained data and uh, they felt that it had been widely shared and therefore could be manipulated, but they were launching an investigation uh, anyway, uh, which, you know, there, there is nothing in the data to suggest that by the time we got it, it had been, it had been uh, somehow altered to include the name, names of officers. Um, in fact, we had obtained the data sort of immediately after the hack, like not long after the hack itself. Yeah. So, you know, we're very confident that the data is is accurate and had not been manipulated. Um, well, and the, OP, I, I, the OPP decided to launch their own probe as well. Yeah, I, I just thought it was a rather flimsy uh, explanation. I mean, you know, Daniel Ludwig's uh, Pentagon Papers was a leaked document too. Uh, and so maybe it didn't stand up in court, but it certainly brought down the Johnson administration uh, when <laughs> in the court of public opinion. And I'm not suggesting that's going to go here, but what this does, I think, is it validates the concerns that an awful lot of people had. It, you know, we saw the pictures of, of Ottawa police officers, you know, fist bumping with some of the protesters and standing by as they were setting fires and things of this nature. And you had to wonder... Uh, what was up in a situation like that. But to your point about identifying these people, uh, I just want our listeners to understand, you were very thorough in cross-checking to make sure that uh, it's not just that Bob Jones, it's this Bob Jones. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's why there were four of us. Uh, That's why me, Marco, Alex, and Sheila um, were assembled as kind of a mini team uh, from the star uh, to be able to do this because it's a huge volume of data. And so we had to take the data in the give, and we've we've laid this out a bit in the story as well. We we took the give send go uh, leak data, we cross referenced it with the Ontario Sunshine list, which is the as you know the annual list of public uh, employees in Ontario who make more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. Once we have, then we look at the names that match, and then we have to confirm that the name on the Sunshine list that cross references to the give send go data is the same person, and we did that by. Um, looking at the postal codes that was in the Give, Send, Go data, property records, social media uh, records, photos, birth dates, you know, do, does a middle name here match a middle name in the data, et cetera, et cetera. So there was, a, there was a number of points of contact that we had to confirm to be confident to say person X is in fact the same person who works for the OPP, for instance. 
you uh, you also talked to uh, to get some perspective on this uh, a number of criminologists and uh, folks that that had been in the justice system at one time, uh, and I was surprised by by the cynicism of some of their. I mean, it, they neither of them that that you talked to seem seem surprised by this. No, and and the reason that they they're not terribly surprised um, is that through the pandemic, there have been a couple of fairly active, fairly loud, you know. Uh, anti-vax, anti-mandate organizations that are aimed directly at law enforcement. One is called Police on Guard for Thee. The one that's got a lot of attention in the last three weeks is called Mounties for Freedom, because Mounties for Freedom, of course, is led by uh, Daniel Bulford. Daniel Bulford is one of the leaders of the Ottawa occupation and happened to be a former RCMP TAC officer who had at times been assigned to the prime minister's security detail. And he spent a great deal of his time uh, in the occupation pleading with other police officers from other services and the military, saying, essentially, disobey your orders and come and join us. And that was a, he was doing that right up until the day he got arrested, um, once the, the, uh, the police finally did move in on the occupation over the weekend. So the fact that there are elements, and I think it's, it's important to stress these are elements of police culture, not policing in total, but there are elements of it that have been very sympathetic to the anti-vax community, the anti-mandate community, um, you know, kind of that conspiracy theory milieu that has really caught on and driven so much of these protests that we've seen uh, happen over the last two years, culminating, of course, in, in the occupation of Ottawa. So that's why they're not terribly surprised, because there already were some elements of police culture in Ontario who were openly sympathetic to this sort of thing. As you, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, one of your sources, uh, Jeffrey Monaghan, who's, uh, I guess, a criminologist at Carleton University, yeah. uh, I think he made that point. He says, we know that police culture shares elements of the same kind of politics that are kind of represented in the in this convoy movement. And, and we've seen evidence of that. I guess you guys have been just some reporting on that for the last little while. I mean, certainly in the military, uh, one you know very famous case, of course, of a Canadian military who was a, a white nationalist and, and a neo-Nazi, who, and the you know, Canadian military had to act on that. You had to drag them kicking and screaming into the investigation to do it, but they finally did it. And we've known uh, that there are elements in that. And your point, I think, is well taken here. Uh, at no point in, in your investigation here do you say, well, all cops are like this. There are elements no. within police services, as there probably are in others as well. But as you mentioned, <laughs> the big difference is uh, these people all took an oath to serve and protect. And are they really doing that? Well, I mean, and that's why we took a look at it. And, you know, some of the protesters who put up videos after the Emergencies Act and you see, you know, the policemen that began to push uh, the, the occupation out of center block. They would post videos where they're screaming at the police. I mean, as, as a quick aside, the protesters are always saying, you know, this is about peace, love and unity. And then they hurl just the most vulgar insults at the police officers who showed up uh, and attack journalists and so on. But when they're filming the, the police officers who are doing this, they're saying things like, you don't want to do this. I know you don't want to do this. Come join us. And I think part of the irony there is, you know, I've known a lot of cops for a lot of cops for a long time. Um, I don't know very many who would enjoy the assignment of having to push protesters out of a public space, having had the city been occupied for three weeks. Um, nobody would have enjoyed that particular task. They do it because that's the job they're sworn to do. And so it's always important to remember that even as we go through this data and we look at people in different sectors like policing, 
who gave money to financially support the occupation, it's nonetheless important to remember there's lots of police officers who are out there who were doing the job because it was their job. You know, they, they, they very likely didn't enjoy a single second of it, but it was important for them to do their duty. So uh, it, that's just a caveat I think is worth keeping in the back of our heads as, as we talk about this. Well, and we saw those stories over the weekend, didn't we? I mean, I was, I, I'm sure you were, uh, you know, glued to the TV, you know, yep. for, well, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to see what was going to be happening here. And we saw evidence of offers, officers being shoved, pushed. And uh, as a matter of fact, a couple of times, I guess we told the protesters, and well, we got it on the video, protesters actually trying to disarm them, take their, their firearms from them. Uh, it's it's not a nice job, and it's a very uh, complex job. And, and you, you know, let's face it, the officers are putting themselves in danger by doing that, too. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are there are elements of, you know, when people say, why didn't the police do something? And I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions that have to be thoroughly examined and looked at um, when this is all over in terms of the conduct of the OPP and the Ottawa police in particular in Ottawa prior to the Emergencies Act. But also remember, there were so many protesters there that you can't just, you know, call a couple of police officers together and, and push them out or send them home. Um, because the numbers were so big that police needed to be there in fairly large numbers as well. That doesn't excuse um, the, the policing failures that led up to the declaration of the Emergencies Act, um, but it does explain why, in some cases, it does take a little bit of time for kind of police to organize to execute a large operation. Grant, you did not publish the names uh, that you were investigating. Uh, certainly, you know who they are. Uh, yes. are, you, are you waiting for this process to, to unfold before? And I'm not suggesting that's uh, something that you guys yes. plan to do. Uh, but first of all, why not publish the names? And B, uh, what are the next steps here for you and, and your team? You know, one of the things that we as a group and in, in, in conjunction with our editors, you know, all the way up to the to the big bosses um, who, who run the newsroom, uh was once we had this data and we recognized that it was largely accurate and we could specifically identify people on this list, we had to kind of come up with a criteria that made sense in, ter in terms of the public interest, saying, you know, who are we going to name and who are we not going to name? Um, Marco Ovid and I, a few days prior to, uh, well, last week, we did a story about the top five donors yeah. um, who, who did it the most money. In that case, we named them. And there were two reasons for that. One, they had effectively named themselves. Once the, the, the list had been out, they had all made public statements. Um, but the, the most important criteria for us was the amount of money they had donated in that case. These were the guys who had donated really substantial, giant piles of money uh, to this protest and occupation. And so there's a public interest in knowing who the, who the big bank is, bankrolls are behind that. The average donation on the give, send, go list is about $90 US. The police that we found um, had donated, were donating between 50 and $200. They weren't anywhere near the top. Mm -hmm. And so the decision was made fairly early on that this wasn't about necessarily um, naming, uh, you know, uh, Joe Constable from Hamilton or something who had donated $50. It was an institutional question. Were there police officers donating to this? And then what did that mean for what we saw on the ground in Ottawa? And what does that mean for policing generally in Ontario? Is it a problem that has to be addressed? The answer to that seems to be yes. But because the donations amount, donations amount were so small, we felt it was more responsible in this case, not to name the individual officers, but look at this as an institutional issue.
and again, I'm not going to try to pry names out of you because I know I couldn't do that. Uh, but but does it run up the chain of command or were these uh, frontline officers? Was there a characterization that you could share with us? Uh, I, can, I can say that um, in, I think, every single case, except for one, they were all either constables or sergeants. Um, there was one that, that, that was above the rank of, of sergeants. Uh, but the rest of them were all uniformed officers. There were a few that were listed as um, plainclothes detectives, but that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they're high up in the chain of command. Mm -hmm. Being plainclothes detectives means you're attached to a unit like the major crimes unit or criminal investigation branch in which, you know, you're still a constable, but you're in plainclothes as opposed to uniform. It's just a distinction in terms of what their their actual duties are uh, when investigating crimes. And just uh, I want to reiterate a point you made at the beginning of our conversation, for, just for the listeners who may be just jumping in. As we mentioned, it, it's fine to make political donations, but the, as as one of your sources told you, uh, to my knowledge and from what you're reporting on this, these donations were made after uh, this whole exercise was deemed to be an illegal occupation. So anybody that made those donations after that date uh, had to know full well, especially if they were in law enforcement, uh, that they were funding an, an illegal operation. The timeline here was extremely important. Um, so, I mean, just quickly for your, for your listeners, the initial fundraising effort for what ended up being called Freedom Convoy 2022 was done on the crowdfunding, a very popular crowdfunding site, uh, GoFundMe. Yeah. But as you know, and that raised like $10 million. As you know, that got frozen after the Ottawa police uh, went to GoFundMe and said this is being used for illegal activity. Ultimately, the entire GoFundMe campaign got shut down and the money refunded to its donors. Then that happened. One of the key leaders, a woman named Tamara Litch, on February the 2nd, she started a second fundraiser. This one was on the Christian crowdfunding website Give, Send, Go, which would ultimately raise about the same amount of money in a very short span of time. By that point, we had, you already knew what was happening in Ottawa. Uh, the police called it an illegal occupation. The prime minister said it was becoming illegal. The premier of Ontario had called it uh, a siege. Um, and of course, all this is happening against the backdrops of border blockades across the country. So at that point, by February 5th, when we're looking at the first donations made by the police officers on our list, um, it was very clear what was going on. And I think one of the, the experts that we talked to said, I mean, this is where this is where it gets really problematic for the officers who did donate, because at that point, they should have known they were donating to something that had been regarded as an illegal occupation. And that's why the exactly. timeline there is, is, so, is so important. Because if they had donated back in January, in early January, to the original GoFundMe, you could maybe make the argument, well, we thought it was just going to be yeah. a, a, a protest in Ottawa, and they'd be gone after a couple of days. It, it turned into something else, and they continued to donate anyway. Exactly. Grant, congratulations to you and your team on, on, on the great work on this story. And, uh, and I know there'll be follow-ups on this as uh, they go down the road on this. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Grant LaFleche, of course, uh, one of the uh, team of journalists that uh, uncovered this story uh, in the uh, Toronto Star investigative team. And of course, you can also see Grant's work in the uh, St. Catherine Standard. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.